Welcome back to the program. Today, amidst all the doublespeak of politics, it's not always clear where the battle lines are drawn. But when FDR became president in 1933, he called for bold, persistent experimentation. He believed that it was essential to do something. This was a far cry from Warren Harding, who said in 1920 that any experimentation will add to confusion, that our best hope lies in the administration of our proven system. Upon assuming the office of president in 1923, Calvin Coolidge would take these words very seriously. He would actually and literally carry out the policies that Harding and Coolidge were elected on, a policy of no and of austerity. It was a far cry from the politics of action that characterizes our modern presidency. What it wrought for the nation is still being debated today, and whether it might be appropriate for the nation today is an open question. My guest, Amity Schles, gives us a new take in her new biography of Coolidge. Amity Schles is the author of the national bestseller, The Forgotten Man. She chairs the board of the Calvin Coolidge Memorial Foundation. She teaches economic history at New York University's Stern School of Business and is a magna cum laude graduate of Yale. It is my pleasure to welcome Amity Schles back to this program to talk about Coolidge. Amity, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Great to have you here. Talk a little bit about how your work and your interest in Coolidge grew out of the stuff you had written about in The Forgotten Man. Well, The Forgotten Man is a book about how they broke it, essentially, how the economy was broken by poor policy promulgated by both Republicans and Democrats in the 1930s. So it's a bit sad, uh, to, and then and, and I be- became interested in um, a pair who fixed it, who made the economy better when it was messed up. It's much harder to put something back together than it is to break something. Um, people have said uh, putting back an economy, you know, reorganizing it is like uh, making a living aquarium out of fish soup. <laughs> it's awfully hard to do, and yet artfully, Harding And Coolidge did it, and Coolidge especially uh, deserves the credit. Uh, It's the kind of miracle we'd want today. And talk a little bit about that. In 1920, from 1920 forward, certainly what Harding and Coolidge accomplished created tremendous prosperity in the country. And yet 10 years later, it was, as you say, broken. What happened? A couple data points. Um, In the 20s, growth was 3 or 4%. Unemployment was below 5%, even when they had a recession, and they had several, maybe it would be six, uh, that was about it, uh, usually very low, um, and it was enormously beneficial to the middle class. People got electricity, and people got cars, and people got indoor plumbing in this decade, so that's important. Second thing. Uh, then came the Depression, and the question is whether you blame the decade of trouble and double-digit unemployment on the prior decade. And this is what economists debate, and having researched it for Forgotten Man um, all these years and now for Coolidge, I I find there's very little evidence that a depression of that magnitude and duration need have followed the 20s. The 20s weren't that much of an error that the 30s, um, it had to be that bad. The policy of the 30s is the cause of the duration of the Great Depression. The 20s were actually good. So so people tend to blame something on someone when it follows something else that that first person, you know, that person did. In this case, that's a fallacy. I would not blame Harding or Coolidge. Was there something in the prosperity of this Harding-Coolidge period 
that was, and, and the Gilded Age, that was in some way unreal, that the perception of it, the surface of it was different than the underpinnings of it. As we talk about in the 90s sometimes with respect to the gap between the stock market and its boom and the economy overall. Not so much. Not so much because most people weren't in Great Gatsby. They weren't the, the struggling mechanic and they weren't the very wealthy people with the big houses. They were, they were, they were middle class and doing just fine and glad, in fact, to have the wealthy people as models, something to aspire to, right? Um, so it wasn't that fatalistic. You're thinking of Gatsby, and Gatsby is a wonderful book, um, but it's not about 1929. What we tend to forget, and certainly the filmmakers do, is that Gatsby was published before um, many years. It was published in the first part of the 20s, not the second part, right? So it was talking about a crash that the country got over, if it was talking about any crash, the crash of the early 20s. Um, so, so there wasn't much to dislike in the 20s. I don't like uh, what happened to farms. No, I mean, that, the farming sector had trouble and many farms went bankrupt or lost their mortgages. That's pretty bad. Um, the Ku Klux Klan was terrible in the first part of the decade, but began to withdraw and weaken in the second half. Very interesting largely due to economic prosperity. So you can find things that should have been much better, but overall it was an enviable decade. Coolidge, though, when he saw the stock market go from around 100 to almost three times that, had his concerns. Well, that's right. This Coolidge, Coolidge's life parallels the life of the Dow because the Dow Jones Industrial Average came online at about the time Coolidge came online following college, you know, uh, and Coolidge had seen multiple crashes, and he didn't want to be, as a politician, responsible for a crash, and he knew that this this tripling was too high for the stock market. So as an investor, um, as a fellow citizen, and as a politician, Coolidge didn't like the idea of a giant crash, and the, the, the market was extraordinarily high, but he never imagined that a 10-year depression would be caused by it, and the truth is a 10-year depression was not caused by the market crash. The market could have recovered after a couple years, and when you look at 32, 33, these are years after the 29 crash, you can always find other reasons that made the depression stay. So I, I don't it, just because Coolidge was concerned about the stock market being too high, and it certainly was. That doesn't mean he foresaw the Great Depression because no one did or could. We had never done the policies we did in the early 30s, um, and as I argue in Forgotten Men, those policies caused a new kind of depression. One of Coolidge's reactions to the market going as high as it did, was to say that even if he was concerned about it, there wasn't really anything he or the federal government could do about it. It's an entirely different period with much to admire in it. When when the government didn't manage the economy, the Fed was very young. It was a weaker Fed. Uh, we got our modern Fed law under Roosevelt. Um, nobody expected the Fed to be in charge. Coolidge thought of the Fed as a club of banks that helped one another, which is how it was originally conceived, the Federal Reserve System, not the Federal Reserve monarchy, right? And uh, he thought that most of the market, well, you know, it, it was the market. It would go up and down. It wasn't the responsibility of the chief executive or the Fed to manage an economy. And in fact, if anything, he thought it was the responsibility of New York, where the market existed. 
Well, that's right. There was no security. You don't want to impose your values of today, you know, what we call presentism on the period. They didn't have an SEC, so Coolidge couldn't whip up the SEC chairman. There was no SEC. The stock market was regulated by New York State. And then the Boston stock market, where Ponzi was, was regulated by the state of Massachusetts. And Coolidge had been a regulator because he was a politician in Massachusetts when Charles Ponzi created the Ponzi schemes, which is an example of a financial um, you know, a financial fraud, just uh, passing on money and uh, having the appearance of growth. He had regulated that as a Massachusetts, not a federal politician. So that was his attitude. And you could argue that it wasn't so incredibly old-fashioned um, and, uh, you know, without utility for us today, as the history books suggest. Um, I would like very much for you to think about um, the number of entities that were created to run the economy in the 1930s, whether it's the National Labor Relations Board or the Securities and Exchange Commission. All those just weren't there in the 20s, so Coolidge was a different kind of president. Talk a little bit about how Coolidge's policies differed from Harding's. In in many ways, it reflected things that Harding talked about, but he didn't quite act on them in the same way that Coolidge did. This is a very interesting thing um, that I uh, studied quite a bit in the book, Harding and Coolidge are a ticket. Harding for president, Coolidge for vice president. They run on something called normalcy, um, which sounds today like, uh, let's see, we should all be normal, and that's not very attractive, right? Uh, But what they meant by normalcy is, as Coolidge put it, less uncertainty, less policy uncertainty, and that begins to to sound attractive and interesting. Harding wins. He he says no to things. Uh, He creates a very creates with Congress a very tough budget law, the Budget and Accounting Act of nineteen twenty one, which enables him to work on budgets. Um but but he uh, it's a difference of temperament. Harding was a lovable senator from Ohio. He had very few enemies. And he, he tended to want to say yes, even though his policy, his program, his platform said no. Um unfortunately Harding died. Unfortunately, his name was mired in scandal. So Coolidge comes in, and he's much more of an enforcer personality. He didn't want any scandal because he knew that it took away from his policy work. So Coolidge cleaned up the presidency and executed the rest of the platform, uh, you know, of the plan that Harding had been unable to. Very like um, one could say Johnson after Kennedy. Uh, he said, "I will." execute the Harding policy to perfection. That's what Coolidge said. And um, Harding had got the tax, Harding had said taxes had come down, but he kind of got tired. He, I think he got him into the 40s. Coolidge reduced taxes so that the top marginal rate was 25%, which is lower even than Ronald Reagan's rate after the 1986, the historic tax cut of the Reagan years. Wow. And all the while, Coolidge had surpluses. And the astounding thing about Coolidge is that when he left office, with all this growth of the 20s, the federal budget was actually smaller than when he took office in that summer of 23 when Harding died so suddenly. Man, how do you do that? Because today when we speak of a reduction, we mean a reduction in the rate of increase. You know, you hear all this baseline talk about the federal budget. Coolidge actually shrank the federal budget. You can see it in the tax foundation tables. So how do you do that? Whoa. Uh, that was very interesting, and that was temperament. He was just much tougher and um, more inclined constitutionally to say no. He vetoed quite a bit.
he vetoed 50 times. In fact, he liked saying no. It was very much part of his temperament. And talk a little bit about the way he vetoed so much of this legislation, this, this pocket veto, which really drove Congress crazy. That's right. I mean, temperament has a lot to do with this. And uh, Coolidge, Coolidge was a wonderful minimalist and a wonderful hatchet man. And the pocket veto, uh, which not everyone was familiar with at that time, it, what the executive does is hold, put the bill in his pocket during Congress's recess, and it therefore dies after a certain point, and the poor Congress has to start all over again with their law. What are the beauties of the pocket veto? You don't have to write a message. Remember, he's called Silent Cal. Um, that's important. And uh, they have to start all over. You can't be overridden as the chief executive. But but a pocket veto, uh, to get in a, a position to, to execute one, you have to be a little bit tricky. The Congress has to pass the law very close to the vacation and put it to you pretty close to the vacation, uh, to the recess, right? And uh, and uh, then you have to, you know, um, let it die. And you have to trick them a few times. I mean, they get wise after a while, don't they? Uh, they would rather have um, a veto that could be overwritten, which is a regular veto. And uh, so, th- so there you go. I, I, he was a maestro. He was a regular Isaac Stern of the pocket veto. Talk a little bit about the silent cow part of this, because it wasn't only that he was an introvert. It was also that he saw a tremendous political utility in few words. Talk about that, Amity. Well, that's right. I mean, it, Coolidge, nobody is shy by the time they get to Washington. They're, we can say they're silent, or we can say they're reserved, or we can say they're frustrated, but shyness, is, it's just not a noun one would apply to finished politicians. Shy, uh, shy suggests, I don't know, inexperience. So, so Coolidge saw that if he talked less, people would give up earlier. They would come mendicants. I mean, that's what the presidency is. Even in those days, you're receiving one mendicant group after another all day long. Wow. And uh, he would just shut up and they would leave faster. And he said this. And sometimes, I mean, there are recorded instances where he would give people a worse deal if they kept talking. There's a little bit of cruelty in there, isn't it? Isn't there? So, so I, I very much enjoyed uh, observing his methodology here. But we want to remember it wasn't just because he was a sourpuss. He was a sourpuss with an end. He wanted to save money so the people would have more money of their own. And he said this quite eloquently uh, in his own speeches. He's a beautiful writer, so you could read Coolidge or you could read his autobiography, which is much shorter, uh, and see that every time he did something like this, he did it to to serve the people. He felt the presidency ought not be imperial. It ought to be a presiding job, as in the derivation of the word. Um, And he did much to refurbish it, to smooth it over after the Harding scandal. And yet some people perceived him as being boring and that he had the temperament of a wet blanket. Talk a little about that. Oh, yes. Alice Roosevelt Longworth said um, he looked as though he'd been weaned on a pickle, and she was kind of the doyenne of the Society of Washington at that period, married to an influential congressman, Nick Longworth, daughter of T.R., Theodore Roosevelt. But remember who she was. What kind of Republican was her father, Theodore Roosevelt, an activist Republican, the opposite kind? So 
I think we uh, are too easy on ourselves when we allow people like Alice Longworth to determine our opinion of Coolidge or, for that matter, Harding, because she had skin in the game herself. She was on the side of activist Republicans, completely different, the Roosevelt's from Coolidge. Um, one of the wonderful writers uh, who, who watched the White House went to the White House just after Coolidge left and when Hoover had moved in, and Hoover was also an activist Republican, and that author said, you know, here I am in the Hoover White House. It's not like the Coolidge White House at all, but it does remind me of Theodore Roosevelt's White House. Theodore Roosevelt's White House, um, you know, TR talked better than Hoover, but Hoover gets more done at the desk, and either way, it's energized. It's an energetic presidency. So that's a long way of saying the critics of Coolidge, you want to ask what is their bias before you take their word. Would it have been difficult, though, for Coolidge to, to, to really play that same no card and that austerity card were it not for a nation in the midst of prosperity? Yes, it would be. It, it's, well, let's just say this. When the nation is flush, it's hard to save money because the people see no point. And when the nation is hard off, it's hard to save money because people are suffering. Government money, that is. So it depends on your interpretation of what happens when things are bad. Uh, in the case of that you're asking about the early 30s, perhaps the government should have been less involved. Perhaps the um, government perpetuated the Great Depression eventually. I'm not talking about the first two years, but the later years, right? And uh, this, you know, maybe there would have been less suffering if there had been less emphasis on intervention in the later 30s, especially after the, the first great deflationary period. So, so I think it's hard no matter what. It's, when, 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 when we're feeling flush, it's hard to because we can say, now I can afford a toilet, now I can afford electricity. Can the government not afford a pension for veterans? That was the issue in the 20s. Why ever not? The, vent, the veterans have only one leg. They are in pain. There are no antibiotics. Why ever not? Well, it would have been great to create a federal pension for the vets, except that Coolidge didn't want to allow the creation of entitlements. He didn't use that word. That's a modern word, but that's what he meant. Was he wrong about that? You can ask. It's not that he didn't care about the vets. It's, it was the precedent. And we want to recall in the case, for example, of the 20s, that the states and the private charities did much for the vets. Once we got a federal management of charity, the private charities got much smaller. It crowded them out. That's what David Beto writes about. Talk a little bit in, in a broader sense how Coolidge saw the role of government. And one of the unique things about Coolidge is he came to the presidency having held many, many offices on the way there. He had been a creature of government in some respects. Well, it's very interesting because we tend to think of uh, if someone's going to say no to Washington, they must not be of Washington, right? They must be an outsider. A governor is often put forward as a candidate. Uh, often our reformers think of Jimmy Carter um, are conceived as outsiders and their political inexperience is seen as a bonus, a benefit. In the case of Coolidge, he said no and he had plenty of experience. So he was an unusual man, I'd say not corrupted by politics. Uh, um, and his political knowledge, because he had served, for example, as president of the Senate in the state of Massachusetts and then president of the Senate as vice president in Washington, his knowledge of legislation enabled him to do more uh, of the process than he might have done had he been totally new. 
he he figured out about the pocket veto, which was which was sort of obscure. The New York Times um, tried to describe what Coolidge was doing um, uh, with the pocket veto, and he, they finally came settled on this phrase: "The president disapproves it by inaction." Disapproves. <laughs> No, so so how did Coolidge get to be that Isaac Stern, that maestro, through this experience? But you want to also add the experience that he had was different. In the olden days, when someone was in the Senate in Massachusetts or in the general court, as they call it, he also worked. Coolidge always had a law practice, or most of the time, up until he, he was getting ready to be governor. Um, many lawmakers across the nation served only part-time, and they were paid very little. The rest, they went back to their vineyard, to their law practice or whatever for the rest of the year. So to be a professional politician was closer to a kind of military service than it is now when you're really a professional politician to the exclusion of anything else. With Coolidge, the personal and the political merged in so many respects. I mean, he was just as frugal and, and just the same in his personal life as he was in terms of how he saw the country and the presidency. The Coolidge's knew they had to play up their frugality uh, because they were asking the people to be frugal. And they were frugal in order to be consistent for the people. They were honest. But if you look hard, you can find certain breaks that they decided were okay. For example, Mrs. Coolidge had beautiful clothes that were purchased from the store of one of the Coolidge backers. That was acceptable in those days. Today we'd question that. We're, we're sort of more more prissy now. Um, but uh, that was acceptable, but they were very beautiful clothes. They were from this, uh, the Stearns department store in Boston. And if you go back and look at Mrs. Coolidge, she was such a beautiful first lady. She rivals all the others. Uh, and she looked great. And part of that was the clothing. And Coolidge was very proud of her clothing. He spent money of his own on her clothing quite often as well, shopped in Washington. Um, also, uh, you look, you know, the Coolidge's rented. They did not buy until after the presidency. That's astounding. They didn't even own a house. Um, and that was important, and it was because Coolidge was frugal. They lived very frugally in Boston when he was governor. They didn't have a grand mansion to entertain either. Um, there's that. But you also want to remember Coolidge is not from a poor family. He's from a farming family. So there's acreage in the background. There's some food in the background. It's not as if there's nothing all the way down the line. Coolidge was more like a representative of his family. His father gave him over to service. The son forwent income and served. Uh, but he always had his family in the background. I'm not saying they're wealthy, but they were not impoverished. You mentioned the farm issue before and the, how badly farms did in this period. Talk a little bit about... Coolidge's decision not to really engage in any kind of farm subsidies. Well, that's an example of his consistency, of his unbribability, of his uh, uh, the quality of his personality and his character. He came from a, a place that did suffer. You know, it, it, in Vermont is not a place you want to farm. It's rocky most of the time, right? It, later, uh, a survey. A surveyor went through his town, Plymouth Notch, and found that not an acre of it was arable. It was so such poor, um, such poor farm ground, and the people there struggled. And in his town, Plymouth Notch, well, the train did not come there. Hmm. The electricity did not come there really uh, for quite a while. 
So the poor farmers, what they had, how could they get it out? Well, only with difficulty. Coolidge's father founded a cheese factory, and we do have a cheese factory now in Plymouth Notch. We hope you'll visit. Mm. Um, and what's a cheese factory? Well, it's nice. It's fun. It's a dairy state, but it's also an exercise in desperation. A cheese factory is a way to get protein out when you don't have refrigeration or transport because the cheese can last much longer. You can send it by mail. And all the cool just sold cheeses. It's a stinky thing, a cheese factory. Um, but they didn't mind it. It was the stink of commerce in Plymouth Notch, and there was too little of commerce in Plymouth Notch. And yet, at knowing this and knowing the hardship of many farmers in the area around um, Plymouth, around you know his childhood, Coolidge vetoed farming subsidy several times. He vetoed what we call McNary Hogan, the old farming bills to help farmers with prices. He he said, you know, farming is a good thing. Uh, I'm not going to imitate Coolidge, but you can imagine uh, him saying, uh, he said, well, farmers never have made much money. Don't suppose they ever will. He saw that farming didn't usually make you rich. It didn't. Make, it kept you from being poor, but it didn't make you rich. So, so that's a very tough attitude uh, towards people he knew quite well, the farmer. But he, again, he thought, uh, as with the vets, he thought once we start a subsidy, well, we'll never get out of it. And that was uh, proved to be prophetic because you can see we're still talking about agricultural subsidy and still seeing it. Did Coolidge's views change at all over his political lifetime, and was he influenced in any way by the progressives of the era? Oh, completely. Coolidge, the young man, was a progressive. He even had some legislation I discovered. Well, let's see, antitrust legislation to stop trust building amongst theaters. He was a big antitruster because that was the thing to be. I describe his honeymoon in the book as the period where he was overshadowed by Theodore Roosevelt, who was the big politician of his day. And many of the state uh, politicians he grew up with were progressives. The GOP, his party, was the progressive party. Um, so he kind of outgrew progressivism, I'd say, because he saw it didn't work very well. Uh, but if you go back and look, he raised teacher pay, you name it. Uh, he did the progressive things in state legislatures or in his town, Northampton, Massachusetts, the county seat. He was known as a good politician, not a reactionary politician or a conservative or a classical liberal politician, but as a good politician, which meant we like him and if you uh, as a man. And then if you dug, you saw some progressive policy. Why did he choose not to run again and then let Hoover carry on the mantle? Coolidge chose not to run again in 1928. He had run only once. He had run in 24, and so he was clearly uh, entitled to a second term. Uh, 28, uh, there was no great law now limiting terms, and he, would, he wouldn't have been um, qualified for that anyway because it was only his second time since Harding had died. But he chose not to run, and other historians have said it was because he was depressed. Psychology. He was tired. He was very tired, of course. But um, my analysis is that he chose not to run again because he saw second terms or second and a half terms in his case could be very negative. <laughs> you see with President Obama today or President Bush how hard it is to be in a second term. Um, and because he felt it was inappropriate for a politician to stay in too long. And this is written quite beautifully in his autobiography, where he says, uh, you know, after a certain time, you need a change of personnel. This was his distaste for corruption. 
Um, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. I have no evidence he read Acton, but he certainly understood that thought. Amity Schley's biography of Coolidge is just out in paperback. Amity, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. No, thank you.